on the property experience, our hosts Zarko Jokic and Anna Porter will take you behind the curtain of the property market Australia-wide. So welcome back to the property experience. We have Nicole Jacobs from White Fox Advocacy and The Block, but today we're talking more about probably what you're doing at White Fox than anything else. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me, Anna. So I was just, we were just talking before we started recording about how the market in Melbourne, which is where you're predominantly based, you're seeing a few different segments in the market. You've just come out of lockdown, you know, you've got this whole newfound freedom, which is amazing, I'm sure, from a personal perspective and a business perspective. Uh, What is it looking like for the property market? Well, currently, we've just had a very quick change and it changed probably within the last three weeks, three and a half weeks, uh, where all of a sudden, we started to see a slowdown in particular that market between two and four million dollars. Uh, so the family home market, uh, where buyers have become a little more choosy, uh, the vendors can no longer be, you know, really high in the saddle, or they're now starting to readjust slightly, and properties are seeing the selling within their selling range, or um, or they're actually passing in, which is something that's very new to our our market because of course we came out of lockdown as you said incredibly strong no one would have guessed that we would do that in fact out of both lockdowns we've well well, we've been in quite a few but let's just go down to two of them (laughs) where we rallied really strongly after both of those and uh, we've seen immense property growth so you know the first home buyer market is still strong really good a-grade property is still going well even in that two to four million dollars I should just add that Really good property always sells, and in that market, it's still selling well. But anything that's B or C grade, so maybe a compromised floor plan or compromised position, buyers are now going, you know what? I'm actually going to take my time now. We're hearing from the agents that there's going to be more on the market. So let's just cool our jets unless they've actually already sold and they need somewhere to buy. So we're seeing different motivations from different sellers. And then, of course, the high-end market is still going very well. There's a lot of cash around. That's really interesting. Does that mean there's a bit of a buying opportunity now? Do the buyers have some power back? I think buyers have got some power back. I, I think that a lot of properties were selling in the boom prior to auction. People were worried they were going to miss out. And when you start seeing more run to auction or agents talking about they'll accept prior offers, as a buyer advocate, I just go, ding, maybe the uh, competition isn't there. So I know personally I'm not racing in to buy anything prior to auction for clients at the moment unless we felt that it could be highly competitive. But right now that's not the, that's actually not the case. So should sellers be rethinking their strategy? I mean, Melbourne's incredibly auction-centric. Is it now time buyers and agents start to revise whether that's the right way to sell a property? Is there a better way to go about it in, in this current market or this changing market? We actually sell more by private sale than auction. Uh, which really? Is, yeah, an unknown uh, fact, but it is very, you know, it, majority of properties by and large go via private sale because, of course, we've got all those green wedge suburbs that just don't, auction they sell by private sale they take longer to sell but they sell that in that manner um you know central to the city and the the high socioeconomic areas they're used to auctions and they love auctions and so that is you know auctions are great because it gives you a set date for your buyers to make a decision so it's always really good especially in a very buoyant market um coming to the close of the year a lot of 
agents and vendors are trying to close off their properties and get them sold so that they know sitting down at the Christmas table where where they're going or what they've done and they've just put that aside and it's done. Um, but, you know, we moving into next year, it will be very interesting. I think it's still going to be auctions at the start. But as we see, if we do a, a change in the market again, I don't think we're going to go down. I think we'd probably be quite consistent and level in the market. I can't see massive rallies again like we've had. Um, I think auctions will, they're still here to stay, but, you know, we may have, you know, auctions being brought forward, which is pretty popular here now. So you might start off with a four-week campaign, but, you know, you get your buyers by and large within the first, you know, first week to second week of a campaign. And people may actually decide at the start of the year anyway, if there's more stock coming on the market, we've got our buyer pool now, let's just bring it forward and have that auction a bit quicker. Yeah. And in, and in softer markets, there are three stages to an auction. There's the campaign, the auction night, and then sometimes there's post-auction negotiations. It may not just be done on the night. Absolutely. It just means you have to be ready for what that looks like after the auction, if that's the case. Yeah, and we do a lot of vendor advocacy as well. So we see that other side of the fence when we're talking with our clients and the agent that's won the business. And I think that, you know, this morning I had one and we were really talking about those stages and being, I guess, really open and transparent to what's happening throughout that process because on the auction day it can either go incredibly well and it doesn't need to you know you don't need to have um the, the halftime break uh, and you sell it under the hammer um, maybe it gets passed into the highest bidder and there's a bit of a negotiation or third it gets passed in and there's negotiations that continue for the next few few days to a week or more depending on what's happening with the buyer pool at the time yeah and it's great that you do get to see both sides i think that's really valuable for your clients to to know what happens on either side of the fence so I'm going to go back just a little bit here and ask, why did you get into property? What was what was the path that led you into property? Why do we love property? Why do we love property? Um, so I got into property. It'll be my 22nd year next year in property. Um, you started when you were seven? Yeah, correct. <laughs> Six and a half. Um, but um, I, was, I was coming off of a, a corporate life and I moved to San Francisco with my husband and I wasn't able to work because of my visa. I did a bit of work for his company, but that was about it. And I just thought, what do I love um, coming back to Australia? What do I really want to do? And I thought, well, I don't want to go back into the corporate world, but I love people and I love property. So there embarked my time in San Francisco to learn how to buy and sell foreclosed properties because back in, you know, 2000, that's what they were doing. And so that's the path that led me into it. Getting back to Australia, it was straight into getting my uh, agent's rep and then later getting my license. But really just combining my love of people and property and, and I haven't looked back. That's great. And your, so your husband works with you in the business, is that correct? He does some strategy work for the business, yeah, as part of his, uh, he does quite a few things, but that's one of the roles that he has as well. <laughs> yeah, wonderful. And that works well. I used to work with my husband, but I resigned really quickly. <laughs> it wasn't in property. <laughs> we actually work really well together. Um, Zach actually 
uh, looks after sort of the commercial side for some of our clients. So um, he's across all markets, but he's really good on that non-emotional figures-based transaction, which a lot of our investors, of course, require. Um, but yeah, he's he's really good. He's relaxed. He's very uh, focused. And yeah, by and large, we work very well together, which is lucky. <laughs> that's, that's fantastic. That's really good to hear. Um, so you, you talked then about the emotion of it. And obviously investors versus home buyers are going to have different um, ways of dealing with property or, well, I mean, they should. Yeah. Um, and you also mentioned commercial. Talk to me about that, about how the emotion plays into the decision and when it should or shouldn't play into the decision. So I think that regardless of whether we're buying investment properties or homes for our clients, we are that ability to take the emotion out for our clients. So we're always looking at it from a non-emotional perspective, but when we're going to price a property, so let's have a, a residential snapshot. First of all, if you're buying someone's dream home or their first home, or even if it's their second or third, they're, they're going to be emotionally excited about what they're buying because they're going to live in it. Um, and so we all always price properties for our clients so that when we're conducting the due diligence we look at where we think it sits from a land component plus the house on top uh, and then we actually have a look at well where does the market put it but then where could it go with competition and emotion so that they have a really good idea okay because this is in a great street it's a really good position the floor plan's great maybe it it has the ability to add value with some renovations or maybe it's actually done. What does that mean for you and how long are you going to hold that property? So if they're going to hold that property for 10 years or more, then they may actually stretch themselves to that emotional price point because they really want to secure it. But when we're looking at the investor, of course, we will price that property again, tell them exactly where it sits in the market. And then if somebody that's a first time, a first time investor who might become emotional about buying their first investment property becomes, or even if we're looking at an investment that is a residential property, we could be up against people that are buying it as their dream home. So we really have to then go, okay, well, why would you pay the same amount as somebody that's emotionally driven? Maybe you will because you know that, you know, there is a saying that you never pay too much for property. You may just pay too soon. But again, if you're an investor and you're going to hold it for the next 10 to 15 years, then that's okay. But we do then have to balance what you're paying for it and what your return is because everybody wants to have a really good return and growth. So investors are always in the market for different reasons. Some just want capital growth and they're quite happy to sit on something that's got a lower return. Most investors, though, want a really strong return to help pay off the mortgage, but also really good growth potential. Yeah, and that's always the, the challenge, isn't it? Getting as much of the best of both worlds as you can practically get. But And, and the 10-year strategy, I mean, everyone will often intend to hold a property for 10 years. But sometimes life happens, divorce happens, the extra child you weren't planning happens, the, you know, yeah, the holiday that, yeah, exactly, the holiday that you never come home from because you love it too much there happens and lifestyle changes. So that's where I think, you know, it's really important for people to get the right investment property that's still going to perform for them in case they need to sell it in three, four or five years because life has changed. Absolutely. So we really do pride ourselves on buying one, the right property for a client, depending on their. So if they're investors, then we look at their whole portfolio. Are they first time investors? Are they investors that have a very diversified portfolio where they've got industrial, commercial, residential? You know, they've, they've got a real mix. But we also look at, well, if you bought this and you had to sell, well, we need to, we have, you know, my other saying is you make your money when you buy. 
So you've got to buy really well because yes, you can sell really high and you think, wow, we did so well when we sold, but actually you did well because you bought well. Um, and sometimes it's because of the market. So I really believe that you don't lose out on a property unless you have to sell and you're at the mercy of whatever the market is doing at the time. So it's like shares. If you can hold them and you can ride out a bad market, then that's great. But if you have to sell for whatever reason, then you want to make sure that you at least get your money back and hopefully more. Um, but you need to, you know, sometimes maybe it's a residential investment. You may need to live in it. Mm, yeah, you know, it's a really it might good need point. to change its, its structure strategy changes and things like that yeah. and so you know when people can buy their own property we, we do know this um, people can also pull their own teeth if they really want to but we <laughs> suggest there might be a bit of pain on the way through um, why would someone work with a buyer's advocate what's what's the benefits there I love that analogy um, why would they work with us well uh, first of all we take the emotion out so we allow our clients that are buying their dream home to still be emotionally excited about it but we really do conduct that due diligence. So we're looking at property 24-7. We might walk in and out of 30 properties a week, whereas they may walk in and out of five if they're on the hunt. If they've never been in the, you know, if they've been in the market maybe 15 years ago, the market is very different this time around too. Different agents, different strategies, different ways of, of selling property or buying property. So I think that having a professional on your arm and you need to make sure they're a good professional. You know, there are selling agents and there are buyers agents and there are ones that are really good and there are ones that are not that great. So I think that you need to interview them just like you would interview a selling agent. Um, our main competitor is actually people wanting to do it for themselves, not other buyer advocates. That's really interesting, it's isn't it? 99% of the market you will buy themselves. 99% of the market will sell with an agent. So Yeah, it's not a balanced relationship, is it? Like you're not no. going in and dealing with an unsophisticated seller. You're dealing with a professional agent that gets training week in, week out. Like I often say to the team, man, it's hard to buy when you're buying against a McGrath agent because they've been yes. trained so well and we've been trained and it's still got its own yes. set of challenges. Absolutely. That's what they do every day. And we know the tricks, you know, as you would. You you know when they've maybe got no one else, you you know, and they're just trying to get you up. Um, you know when they're trying to play you off against somebody else. You can feel when you need to go quickly, when you can hold back. So there are the ability to, you know, as we keep talking about that emotion that a buyer might have, I've saved clients upwards of half a million dollars because they've been so excited about buying a property. We have to secure it. Do not miss it for us. And they've given me their budget to go to. And it's like, you know what? I think we can do better than that. And then you're saving, you know, and they're doing, as I always say, I want you to do cartwheels and handstands by the time I bought it for you. But it's being able to make sure that we know, you know, the questions we ask of an agent, you know, who's on it? What's their profile? What have they missed out on? All these questions, which you may not ask if you're not sophisticated in buying. Yeah. Um, and at the end of the day, you know, even if you're the CEO of some big uh, company and you're used to negotiating deals, when it comes to your family home or it comes to an investment property and you're not aware of something that's going on, um, you know, I think you need to engage people that know what they're doing 24-7. Yeah, well, we know in the McGrath toolkit of how they um, negotiate, they have a question they'll ask at the very end towards what they believe could be towards the end of the negotiations. They say, all right, so that's your final number. Um, so you're happy if I get a higher offer just to sell it and not come back to you. Yeah. Now, how does a, you know, a buyer that's never had that question before will go, 
oh, oh, oh no, come back to me. They go, okay, so you got more in the budget. Or no, don't come back to me and they could miss out. You know, we've got yeah. ways to work through those sort of questions because we've been asked it so many times. We know the strategy. But a poor buyer would just give away their whole hand with one question. Exactly. Or they go through a property and they go, oh, my God, I, I love it. I have to have it. Don't sell it before, you know, this and the other. And all these telltale signs. And you yeah. just think as a selling agent, because I was a selling agent for seven years, you know, um, it, it, you know, they're your buyers or they're emotional. They maybe, but they're going to drag everybody else up. Who knows? But uh, yeah. There's a bit of strategy around it. So what some of, what, what's an example of a best buy? I'm not asking for an address and saying, what are the scenarios, the circumstances that in your mind makes a really good buy for a property? Is it around price? Is it around terms and conditions? How do you come about some of the best buys you find in, in, your, in your daily job? I would say that position is really important. So we might, you know, we always try and buy the best position possible for our client's budget um, in the suburb that they're looking, or we might even push them to the, the next suburb because we believe that there's going to be great growth. And so if we believe they can get more for their money in the next suburb, we will look at that. So that, that comes down to position again, because it might be that they can just afford one suburb, but that next suburb is starting to gentrify and there's some amazing you know, stores going in and what have you. So we will, you know, push them to look at that. And that makes us realize whether they're after the, the suburb or they're after the house or whatever it is. So good buys come by making sure you've done your due diligence because a lot of people buy because they're sick of looking. They think it's a good price. Uh, for whatever reason, they just, they don't like selling agents and they go, you know what, I'm just going to buy this because I don't want to have to deal with this every weekend. So they're making decisions that are emotional decisions. And so it, it's about making sure it is right, you know, um, and I keep saying that, but if you buy the right property, whether it's investment or to live in, then you don't have to then think, oh my gosh, I've just spent all this money and I need to now go and sell it again because it's not right. Um, so position's really important. Yes, price is important because I think we have a tendency as Australians to want to buy our own home. And so we, again, back on that emotion and we might pay too much or we're trying to keep up with the Joneses, but really look at what you need because we don't all need big mansions. We may be really happy. I've walked through homes where it's a three bedroom, semi-detached, but it has a feeling of a home and it's just beautiful. And then you walk through $10 million property and you think this is cold. I don't, I, I get nothing from it. So you really have to, I, I love getting my clients to write a list. I got clients to do it last night. I said to them, right, Separate rooms. I want you to talk about why this property is right for you. And I want you to put down your pros and cons. And then I want you to come together and talk about that. So they then arrived at the fact that, yes, they still wanted to move forward on this property for the reasons that they now both gelled with and understood. So knowing that both parties want to buy that property is also really important too when you're buying the property because it then will allow you to work out, okay, you know, we want to go forward. We want to, you know, go to a certain amount. Um, so it's just eliminating all the, I guess, the questions surrounding buying a property with each other. I mean, if you're going to buy a property with people that you're not related to, maybe they're a friend or um, maybe they're an aunt or an uncle. So you're related, but you're actually, you know, you, it's not your partner. Um, you need to have these hard conversations about what is the right property and why you're buying it. Yeah, that's really great advice. Uh, what are some of the worst mistakes buyers make? Where do you see it all go horribly wrong? 
are not getting a building and pest inspection and they buy something expecting it to be completely livable and they find out there's rising damp, there's termites, structural, the walls are not structurally sound, it needs a new roof. Uh, the other classic is they wanted to bulldoze it and it's got a heritage overlay. Mm. And, it. and all of a sudden uh, their dream of their brand new home becomes very different because they now need to keep the facade or they need to, I mean, heritage overlays can be anything from like incredibly strict, you can't even change the paint or a fence to, you know, at least being able to put on a modern extension at the back. But I think that not doing your due diligence like that, not checking contracts, you know, if you don't check the con- get the contract checked and there's something in there that is actually um, could be GST is owed and you haven't factored in the GST and you think you can buy it. So you bought it, you then go to buy it, like to put your deposit down and then all of a sudden you're short, you know, imagine if you were short 200000 Yeah, and that's not- a lot of money, isn't it? We're not talking yeah. about coffee here. Yeah. The auction, the, the, the Peston building one's really interesting. I um, went to an auction um, a little while ago and there was a buyer there that hadn't done, the agency hasn't done Peston building, hasn't, this is a very expensive property, hasn't done Peston building or anything like that. And I said, how does he have comfort to be at the auction? He said his theory is that if the other buyers here are bidding, that there's obviously been Peston done building done and it's okay. And I said, hold on, the buyer that we're here for actually is a builder he knows there's problems with this property but because he's a builder he's happy to take them on he yeah. said yeah but that's that's on him I was like wow some people make some interesting assumptions that's crazy isn't it yeah, yeah. those assumptions I think you know I, I talk about the fact that we don't buy a car without a roadworthy why are we going to spend half a million dollars or more because you come well actually we just bought something for two hundred thousand, so <laughs> that's still it's possible um but you're spending half a million dollars or more why would you not spend $500 on a building in pest? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I find it crazy. The other thing, of course, is finance. Yeah. People don't get their finance in order. So they buy it and thinking we're fine for finance, but financeability changes so dramatically and it's changing at the moment. It is. So to get a home loan at the moment is incredibly difficult. If you can't service it, then they're not going to give it to you. So they don't care what you've got in the bank, but if you can't service it, they're not going to give you the loan. So not maybe in a private sale checking that box that finance approval is required is another big one where people really do come unstuck. Yeah, we, we see a lot of that. And especially in this market where buyers feel like they don't have any power, they'll just give every bit of power over and make mistakes. Yeah, yeah exactly. So when it comes to investors, we see a lot of different strategies. We see the whole rent vesting, renovate for profit, I think that's trademarked, renovate to make money. <laughs> uh, we see people looking at, you know, commercial assets versus um, high yield versus high growth. What strategies do you like? What, what do you think works well or are there any that you think don't work? I think it does come down to the individual's portfolio as it is already because sometimes they do want to spread it out. Some, though, really love just one sector of the market. I'm sure you see that. They feel comfortable with it, and that's what they want. Uh, I think that I've just come off a meeting today where we will be looking at diversifying a client's portfolio, and um, we're going to look for rare things, you know, something, you know, like everything from warehouses that may have a dual uh um zoning so mm-hmm. they've got the flexibility to maybe do residential and commercial uh we're going to look at blocks of apartments that are older like art deco or victorian edwardian 
things that can't be built the way they are today. And that creates a uniqueness in the market, doesn't it? Unique, because if it's unique, then it will always be unique um, because you can't build these anymore. So, you know, it does depend on the risk-taking element of a client too. So some are very prepared to take a risk, but a calculated risk, which is why we're there. Um, But it is to make sure that, you know, some of them are buying under this super... um, some are just buying under their their company but yeah it does come down to just making sure that it aligns with what they want as I said at the very start of the podcast about making sure that if they're into yield then we're we're really trying to get yield but I would always make sure that a client's potential for growth is still there because yield is great but growth is even better if you can get that too That's what's quite life-changing, isn't it? It's, you know, if you're making hundreds of thousands of dollars, that becomes very life-changing for people. Absolutely. And that's why I love what we do. I mean, what we do, whether we're buying a dream home or an investment property for somebody, I think it, you know, we have this unique ability to transact in very high, uh, you know, very expensive products. I mean, even if it's half a million dollars for someone, that's a lot of money for them, um, all the way through to $25 million or more. And and you think, well, how blessed are we that we, or fortunate are we that we get to do that with someone? Yeah, it, it is a bit of a privilege, isn't it? It is. And you take them on a journey. You do. And that's what we talk about. Our clients, it's always about a journey because we are not going to buy something quickly for them just to get a commission. Ours is about making sure it's the right property. We've gone back and forth with them. And our job is really to give them a lot of information so they can make an educated, informed decision. Because it's not our job to say, you must buy this. It's our job to present it and to say, we believe it's a really good opportunity based on these factors. But at the end of the day, they need to make that decision. But if we leave out pieces of the puzzle, then they're not making an informed decision. They're basing it on, and that's why you would want an advocate because if you're making it yourself and you've forgotten about three or four other really crucial points, then you might actually have a bit of a disaster. Yeah, absolutely. And look, Obviously, you're on the block. You've been in doing this for over 20 years. So, you know, yourself and your business would be a benchmark for what makes a good buyer's agent in the industry. You've been around long enough to see the good, the bad and the ugly. <laughs> what should someone be asked? If they had to ask three or four, five questions when they're interviewing a buyer's advocate, what are the must-ask questions? It's such a good question. Um, I think you really do need to find out what experience they have I love being able to say, would you like to speak to my last three clients? Because I'm not going to handpick clients because they've I've done well with those clients. Your, your last buy is your, you know, your best referral, isn't it? Because you should be doing what you do with your last person from your first person. Yes, I've evolved over the years that I've been doing it, but I think the experience is really important. Ask about their process. How do they do it? You know, are they going to access off markets? And what does that mean? Pre-markets, on markets. How do they assess a property for us, uh, for, for them? Um, what sort of reports will they get? Um, do they get to come out with you? Do they get to, um, you know, do you, I mean, the journey, we, we take it from start to finish. So will they be there for the pre-settlement inspection, for instance? If anything goes wrong, who do you contact? Like, do you just get palmed off? And the other one is, and this is very much when you're getting a selling agent too, are you the advocate that's going to be working on my, my journey? 
That's a big one, isn't it? Because some firms, you start with someone that's senior and then before you know it, you're working with someone junior. And, and it's fine to work with different people in the firm, but it's good to know who they are and what experience they have and how they'll engage with you during that process. Yeah, look, I like to think that my team is incredibly good or I wouldn't have them in the team, but I'm always across everything. So obviously I'll have my handful of clients that I'm always working with and I might bring in clients that they will uh, basically manage and look and do their legwork, but I'll always be across looking at the property, making sure that the pricing is right and we've ticked everything. We've got a lot of systems in place. So I guess that's the other thing is what systems do you have in place to make sure that we actually tick all the boxes we need to so again they're, they're making a really informed decision yeah and and their fee. <laughs> yeah, yeah exactly and I, and I believe in that thoroughly I often say to my clients that the person they'll be working with in our team I would let them buy my investment property and I have I don't buy my yeah. own properties I let my team do it because I'm going to ask my, that of my clients I absolutely yeah. have to have the same trust in in my people we do um, and I think inspecting is a big one at the moment. So you might not see that as much with local buyers agents, but we see this with an interstate side of things when people from Sydney are buying investment properties in Melbourne or Melbourne in South Australia or Queensland. There are a lot of buyers agents out there at the moment that are actually aren't inspecting because of border closures and the challenges. So if you're working with someone that actually does cross borders, I think it's really critical to either have them know that they've got people on the ground inspecting, qualified people, not that I've heard of one where they used an Uber driver to go take photos. Hmm. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, yeah. So we just needed some photos. Um, yep. <laughs> or use someone that's actually local to the area if you can't find that person that has the people on the ground because they've got, they've got to have boots on the ground, don't they? Oh, absolutely. You need to be. I mean, I'm licensed in New South Wales, but I will work with advocates like yourself to buy properties because um, you have to be on the ground. You know, things can change in a nanosecond in a market. And if you're not across that, you might end up buying something for way more than you needed to. But if you haven't physically inspected a property, you could, you know, if you go off the, the marketing photos of a selling agent, oh, my goodness, the the strife you could get into, it's just not worth your name and your, um, you know, what you do, your credibility. It's just, it's, yeah, you have to inspect. So, local to the area so they know what's going on because as you would know you can look on one side of the street and it's priced differently to the other side of the street why is that well you need to know you know um what's around what's the infrastructure like yes you can look on google but is that a great supermarket is that a really good cafe is that you know um the locals will know yeah we actually were out um doing a evaluation for a client the other day literally on Friday, and we're driving around or picking up all these sales. And we looked at two sales and said, there's a real price differential here. And it was, it was sort of rural residential stuff. And we're really thinking, oh, what's going to, like on paper, they looked exactly the same, right? Yeah. When we got there, one had high tension power lines running along the boundary. And that was the price differential. But if you bought that one off the internet, hadn't done your research, it didn't come up very well on mapping because it was a newer sort of area. We thought, wow, you could have gotten trapped paying what everyone else was paying in the area. But the price differential was huge. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And would you buy that even though it was cheaper, you know? Yeah, yeah exactly. That, exactly. You know, that's a, and that's one of those big mistakes that we were talking about before. Some, you know, massive mistakes where you don't actually understand what's around it. Yeah. Yeah. People, some, and even sometimes I see people go to a property and they don't look up. Yes. <laughs> so did absolutely. you see the power lines down the back? And they go, 
Oh, no, I, I was, there was 45 people there and I went out the back really briefly and then I ran back inside because my wife had our kids out the front and yes. I think, you'd spend more time test driving a car. <laughs> like, what are you doing? So true. You know, often they buy after a 10-minute inspection and it's like, oh, my gosh, this is, you know, worth $2.5 million and you've been in it once for 10 minutes. Yeah. It's, it's crazy. Very isn't interesting, it? isn't it? Yeah. Well, it has been an absolute pleasure having you on the property experience and how can people get in touch with you if they need help buying or an advocate in the selling process and anything else you might be able to offer in property? How do they get in touch? Uh, well, you could go to my Instagram, which is uh, at Nicole Jacobs Property. Uh, you can obviously email me, Nicole at whitefoxadvocacy.com.au. Um um, would you like my mobile? <laughs> uh, look, if you just actually, I'm very lucky. If you Google Nicole Jacobs, then you'll probably get me on Google. Fantastic. It's great that you've got that branding around you because we want more people to be able to get in touch with you. Thank Absolutely. you so much for joining us, Nicole. It's been a Thanks. pleasure. Thanks, Anna. Amazing. Thank you for joining us on another episode of The Property Experience. Stay tuned for more great content.